from PRX. Stew. Stew. Dear. Dear. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Well, don't be sniffy about it. I'm not being sniffy. I think I'm you mean, are. No, no. You've I'm got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show, we're hearing from the children of musicians who decided not to march to the beat of a different drummer and became professional musicians themselves. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. A lot of people resist going into the family business. But what if instead of a plumber or a car dealer, Dad was one of the Beatles? Today, I talk with musicians who decided to follow in the professional footsteps of their parents. And first up, Sean Lennon. Like an airplane, you jump and then you pray. Lucky ones remain in the clouds today. He is, of course, the only child of Yoko Ono and John Lennon. And he has carved out a pretty interesting career of his own as a songwriter and performer and producer, experimenting with avant-garde jazz and folk, as well as pop. I spoke with Sean in 2006 when he'd just released an excellent album called Friendly Fire. I asked him if he felt like he had to work especially hard to live up to the bar set by his old man. I think if you're an artist, you should anyway, you know. I don't think I do especially because my intention isn't to live up to something. It's more just to continue a tradition of making art that's in my family. I mean, my mother does it as well. Your your first album, uh, Into the Sun, came out uh, eight years ago. Mm-hmm. Why did you wait so long to do a, another record? Well, I mean, that relates to what I'm talking about, the disparity between, you know, what people think I'm supposed to be and who I am. And, and so I didn't want to do it, basically. You know, I don't always want to put out a record and be scrutinized and do interviews and have people ask me personal questions in embarrassing situations. I mean, I just don't want to do that, you know. And it's not that I'm complaining about it. It's not like I have an inherent... Oh, poor famous yeah. me. Yeah. It's more that it's just my personality is such that I am not comfortable in that situation. I think certain people are, you know, born rock stars, as it were. And I'm just... I tend to be a little sensitive about those things, and it makes me nervous, you know. And that's really the only reason why I didn't put out a record for eight years. This record, Friendly Fire, your disinclination to be asked unpleasant questions aside, is based on a true story, a fairly sensational story. Well, you know, it's basically about what it's like when, uh, you know, relationships disintegrate. It's not like I invented that theme, obviously, you know. But a friend of yours stole your girl. Yeah, you could call it that. I mean, it was a little more complicated than that. It's more like a Shakespearean tragedy, you know. It's like a triangle where each person has their own responsibilities and, and you know, mistakes. And uh, we we all kind of participated in our destruction, you know. And the tragic part? Well, the tragedy is that I, I, I never got to really make up with him and he passed away. I mean, and, and the tragic part is simply that he passed away because that's something that I'll never really be able to reconcile or get over. But I don't want to pretend that it's a 
tell-all because it really isn't. It's a work of art inspired by the stuff yeah, that really happened. It's a bunch of songs. Yeah. You know. Well, let's listen to one of those bunches of songs. The, the first re- song on the, on the record is called Dead Meat. That was Dead Meat from the new album Friendly Fire by Sean Lennon, and a very lovely song it is. I I read somewhere that you consider your biggest musical influence to be Brian Wilson. I'm hugely inspired and and influenced by the Beach Boys, just in terms of, you know, the complexity of the craft of their songwriting. It's, I mean, of Brian Wilson specifically. It's almost like studying Bach or something. It's very intricate music. It's very sophisticated. And if you want to get good at writing songs, you know, that's the kind of thing you have to, you know, learn from. And my music school, since I never went to music school, is, you know, listening to Beach Boys records, right. you know, but not exclusively, you know. I mean, I I think, you know, to be honest, on some level, I tend to mention the Beach Boys because it's truly an influence, but also just to make sure that people don't think my only influence is the Beatles. Because right. people are just trying to assume that... You know, I live, I wake up in a beetle world, yeah, yeah, in a beetle yeah. land, and drink and sleep and eat <laughs> beetles all the time. It's a simpler story. Yeah, well, I, well yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I do love the Beatles' music, and of course, it's a great influence on me as well. But so is Debussy, you know, so is Ravel, and so is uh, Miles Davis and Cole Porter. And you like the French guys, huh? Ravel and Satie. Yeah, I do, actually. I mean, I'm, I think the older I get, I like more romantic-sounding music. Uh, when I was younger, I used to listen to, like, Slayer and, you know, the Melvins and heavy music. And, you know, I, I somehow wanted abrasive sounds in my head all the time. But I think with the general degree of stress increase in the world, I think I, I'm looking more and more towards sounds that relax me. And I hear you. That's why I don't read the New York Post as much anymore. <laughs> God, I mean, if you could call it reading, yeah. You say that people come with a set of preconceptions expecting you to live in some fantasy of a Beatles world, but I expect that your music and art generally must have been influenced as much by your mother's work. I think I was most influenced by my mother, just not just in art, but in life. I mean, you know, one is by their mother. You know, uh, that's you know, you learn how to speak English by imitating the way your mother talks. I mean, I learned how to live by imitating the way that my mother lived, and she was an artist. You know, she. Uh, we don't sit around the dinner table watching TV as much as we sit around drawing. You know, so for me to kind of be a multimedia person. It was not an effort on my part. It was just kind of the way I was brought up to to live my daily life. I mean, that just seemed like a normal, a meat and potatoes kind of thing. So it's not quite taking over the family business, but kind of. It's continuing the family, you know, uh, behavior yeah. pattern. You know, yeah. That's what it is. Um, you, you made a, a short film for each of these songs. Yeah. Were you surprised at how that came out? Did, did it come out as you intended? You know, it actually did, which is 
the biggest surprise because it was a daunting project and I'd never made a film before and uh, I was pushed to the limit of what I felt I was physically capable of doing in my life. It made the record seem like a piece of cake. What are you working on now? I'm just working on getting the, the band together to tour for this album, you know. I'm also working on a film, a screenplay called Coin Locker Babies. It's about these uh, children that are left in coin lockers at a train station and then grow up thinking that uh, they were born out of a metal box. So as intense as your movie-making experience was with the DVD on this album, you kind of caught the bug of filmmaking? I just like to make stuff, you know. And whether it's music or drawing or, or films, before I die, I just want to make a bunch of stuff. Because it's really about kind of how, how I feel inside. I feel better when I've spent a month making something and then I can see that I made it and I feel like, wow, I did something. As opposed to when I haven't made something, then I feel kind of, uh, it makes me feel anxious. I, it gives me anxiety not to work. Let's put it that way. I don't know if that's the Protestant ethic or just... It could be some Christian guilt, but I mean, it's, it's hard. For, Good habits. It's hard to imagine I have any Christian guilt growing up with my parents being who they were, because they certainly didn't instill any traditions that that way. In, By anyway. osmosis, without being aware of. It. Yeah, I could have absorbed it through my through my skin. It's true. <laughs> Sean Lennon, I want to thank you very much. Thank you. That was pleasant. These days, Sean Lennon is producing music by other artists, including Lana Del Rey, and playing with his band The Claypool Lennon Delirium, and running a record label called Chimera Music. My pal Roseanne Cash is a Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter. Given that her father was Johnny Cash, it makes sense that her music is rootsy and introspective, sometimes haunting. It was a black Cadillac drove you away Everybody's talking, but they don't have much to say But the music she makes, and one song in particular she has secretly loved, are very different things. For our Guilty Pleasures series, Roseanne told us about first hearing that particular song when she was young. I think my first memory is of being, you know, near the beach, in somebody's car, riding along by the ocean and hearing... Do That To Me One More Time by Captain and Tennille. It just felt so bright and sunny and, you know, the ocean and the sunshine and Tony Tennille. Well, I'm certainly not an expert on The Captain and Tennille, but they were both keyboard players and um, songwriters. The Captain, whose real name was Daryl Dragon, had met this woman, Tony Tennille, and they got married, and they started making records together. 
huge pop hits, you know, Muskrat Love, Love Will Keep Us Together. It was almost a tradition in the 60s and 70s that there would be husband and wife teams. In 1976, they had their own TV show, following in the, you know, inimitable footsteps of Sonny and Cher. And now, the Captain Antonio. They were never cool. Never. Even at 14, I thought, this is a guilty pleasure. I'm going to have to be very careful <laughs> who I share with that I like the captain and Tennille. <laughs> well, before we make plans for a vacation, though, you've got to make me one promise. What? That we leave the keyboard at home. Can we send it a postcard? <laughs> they were an incongruous duo. I think that part of the fascination is why are these two people together? Daryl always wore a captain's hat and sunglasses, you know, and it just looked ridiculous because he was morose looking. He never sang. He's just this odd combination of goofy and creepy. How many people think I'm dumb? Raise their hand. <laughs> like, he plays these keyboards that sound really bad. Like he'll play rubber bands wrapped around his toes. And I know I'm really sound like I'm throwing a lot of shade to the captain, but you know, Tony is the one who obsesses me. You're so terrific. Mm, you never done it like that. You never been this way before. She is this kind of all-American girl from Alabama. She's got more teeth than is humanly possible. I mean, her smile is like, you have to put on sunglasses. She would put on these dresses, sequin dresses, slit up to her neck, and that southern charm just oozes off her. She's got the work ethic of a song and dance man, right? She dances, she writes songs, she sings. I mean, to me, in some songs, she sounds like a cross between Dusty Springfield and Dionne Warwick. The first time you heard it, you go, well, this is a piece of pop confection. It's not anything close to the Beatles' The White Album. They're not great lyrics. It's a really overused chord progression. That one, six, minor, four, five, like millions of pop songs use that progression. My husband, John Leventhal, who's a producer, a musician, and songwriter himself, he always says, all of humanity loves the relative minor. <laughs> and um, a good songwriter will be very careful if they're going to use that progression, because it's very overused. Tell it 
The melody she chose to put on top of that progression is um, is really sweet and lifting. You know, it's got a nice lift and it's got these beautiful uh, ascending and descending lines to it. Now she modulates. You know, it's, it's almost like a Broadway conceit, like... <laughs> <laughs> can can you just stay in the same key? But yeah, people love that. The sound of her kind of surrender and lack of artifice. Feels like she's wrapping you in her arms, you know. gentle authority that she has in her voice. I mean, she's got soul. She bends notes beautifully. She's got great pitch. This song, for what it is, is the best it could have been. It's like when you look behind the curtain, there's not much there. It's her. It's her we love. One more time. First up, admit it, you love the iconic couple of the 70s, the Captain and Tennille. Tonight, it's over. Captain and Tennille uh, splitting story. up after nearly 40 years that of marriage. Wrong. So wrong. Love, after all, did not keep them together. So we find out much later that it wasn't this strange romance that everybody thought it was, but it was kind of dark. I wonder what she would have done without the captain. Like, I think in some ways, musically, he put anchors on her feet. I wonder if she was afraid to just go for it. A woman at that time, you know, whether she thought she needed him to provide context or validity in some way. And um, I wonder if now, if it were now, if she just realized she didn't need that, that she was good enough on her own. In fact, she was better. You know, this song does not fit into my legacy or my canon or my father's canon in any way whatsoever. When I hear that whistle blowing, I hang my head and cry. I can't see him ever listening to this for pleasure. Um, I mean, he had his guilty pleasure too, you know, songs about dead dogs and stuff like that. But he required a bit more grit. I mean, and I do too, but I'm just saying, you know, sometimes I eat too much coconut cake. Sometimes I love this song. This is my shower song. Like if I want to warm up my voice <laughs> for decades, it's been uh, do that to me one more time. Do that to me one more time. Once is never enough. 
with a man like you. <laughs> Our story was produced by Skylar Swenson. So what is that song you secretly adore? Or not just the song, the movie or novel or app or cultural anything that you love that would surprise people. If so, write us an email or record us a voice memo and send that to guiltypleasures at studio360.org. We might invite you on the show to talk about it. Today on the show, we're hearing from the children of musicians who decided not to march to the beat of a different drummer and became professional musicians themselves. Such as Joshua Redman, whose father was Dewey Redman, one of the great sax players of modern jazz. Over the past few decades, Joshua has become recognized as one of the greats of his generation. I spoke with him in 2007 when he released an album called Back East. It was inspired by Way Out West, a Sonny Rollins album from 1957 that featured an iconic version of I'm an Old Cow Hand. On his record, Redman reinterprets some of the Rollins songs, but he says he, he didn't intend to make a tribute album. I didn't set out to record the, those two songs, I'm an Old Cow Hand and Wagon Wheels, which are both from Sonny Rollins' Way Out West. I mean, that's where the title Back East comes from. It's, it, it's partly a play on, on Way Out West. But I, I hadn't really been listening to that recording, um, and I was working mostly on, on, on original material for, for Trio. And then one day, um, I kind of rediscovered the album. I had my iTunes on shuffle, believe it or not, and, <laughs> and uh, I'm an Old Cowhand came on, and I kind of had this burst of inspiration uh, to, to do an arrangement of that song. And then Wagon Wheels followed from that, and, uh, and all of a sudden, this, this other concept started to it's emerge. It's interesting. So, the, so the, the digital randomness created a kind of aha moment for you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was a very 21st century <laughs> experience. You were hailed and praised so much so early, called the greatest thing since sliced bread right out of college. <laughs> was sliced bread really that good? <laughs> I love somebody to say. Anyway, the next big thing in jazz, okay? Um, how do you think that, that early intense praise affected you? Um, you know, I, it really didn't affect me at all um, on an artistic level. It doesn't make you think like, geez, I really have, this, the bar is so high for me now. You know, perhaps it affected it slightly in the sense that I felt a certain amount of guilt, you know, because I, I felt like, hey, I, I, I don't think I sound good, you know, <laughs> and, and so, so who am I to deserve this? Um, you know, I've learned that, that you try to make the most of your opportunities and use them for artistic ends, to serve artistic ends. I understand that when you were young, as a kid, your, your father wasn't in your life so much. Was it, did it strike you as odd to be learning to, to play the tenor sax as Dewey Redmond's kid but not from him? It, it never struck me as odd, um, which is kind of odd. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I didn't grow up with my father, but I, I grew up with his music. 
I had all his records and, and would hear him when he'd come to town. He, he, he lived in New York and, and I grew up in Berkeley, California. So I'd hear him when he came to the San Francisco Bay Area to perform. But I spent very little time with him personally. I spent a lot of time with, with his music. Um, Even more interesting. Yeah, yeah. And, and I never felt that, um, I never felt on a conscious level that I was following in my father's footsteps. I never thought, oh, I'm playing the saxophone so I can be like, be like Pops, you know, so I can carry on the family legacy. Of course, a lot of other people seem to think that, but I was, I just was like, oh, I like the, the sound of the saxophone. And, and, and now who knows what was, what was kind of working in that subconscious level. But, but for me, I, I never found it odd at all. And, and uh, now you've had a career for 15 years or more. Have there been moments when you think as you've been playing, oh, I, I shouldn't do it that way. That's too much like my father. No, um, I, I've, I've never felt that. I mean, you know, especially early on, um, you know, after I first moved to New York, a, a lot of people tended to comment on how little they thought I sounded like my father. And I always kind of thought that was strange because he has been, you know, one of my greatest influences. I've been listening to his music since the day I was born, and I've always felt like there was a lot of his 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 sound and his playing in 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 what I've done. But um, but you know, it's true that 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 kind of on the surface, you know, that w- w- we had very different styles, and 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 he and he played of his period in a way of a, in a more free jazz way than you. Did. Yeah, although he was kind of pigeonholed, you know, because uh-huh. he he used to kind of express a little frustration at that because you know when I I played with him for a couple of years um, uh, regularly in his band, I toured with him and made a couple records with him, and uh, and. Every night we would play, yes, we would play something very, very free, you know, very free form, but we would also play bebop and we would play a really, real straight ahead uh, tune. We'd play a ballad, we'd play a down home Texas blues. So he liked to play a little bit of everything. His sound was so strong and so deep that um, his personality would carry through and express itself in whatever style he played. He could play in any style, and still, it was always him. You know, you, you always knew it was him. died in 2006 and he plays on this album back east was that his last recording um as far as i know it was um it was certainly the the it it was certainly the last time that that we recorded together the last time we played together and it was the last time i saw him before uh before he passed away um and uh uh 
it, it was an incredible experience to play with him. And, and neither of us, I think, realized the significance of it at the time. That was May. He passed away in September. Um, but, but for me, it was tremendously significant that I had the great Dewey Redman on my album. You know, that was the significance and, and that I had a chance to play with my father again. Um, had you never had him on a record of his? I had played on some of his records, right. but he had never played on one of mine. And this was the first time I, I even got up the courage to ask him to play. I didn't know if he was going to agree. And, and it wasn't like, oh, I got to get him before he goes. Uh, no, no. I just really, I, I really wanted to play with him. We hadn't played for a while. Uh-huh. You know, he was in, he was in great health and, and spirits, um, you know, uh, uh, when we did the session. And, um, and yeah, I'm just, I'm really glad that we had this, this last time. How did he feel about you making your way so successfully? Um, you know, well, well, ideally you would be asking him. <laughs> uh, uh, he uh, was, I think, uh, tremendously proud, um, but there was also, um, I think it's fair to say, some resentment uh, as well. Um, you know, we had a complex relationship, and, um, and you know, we went through, uh, you know, periods where, where we were, Closer than others, and mm-hmm. and and um, there were periods. You know, when I first moved to New York, um, right out of college, right out of college, that's when I really started to get to know him, and and I was playing in his band and touring with him, and that was perhaps our closest period. And then after um, after I started to do more of my own things as a leader, um, I think we, we we drifted apart for a little bit, um, and uh, I don't want to put you know, words in his mouth or, or to say what he was thinking or feeling. But I mean, I mean, look at it this way here. You know, he, he's one of the greatest saxophonists, in my opinion, of all time, but, you know, certainly of his generation. You know, he, he universal love and respect within the jazz community. Um, but it certainly, um, you know, struggled and didn't have um, a lot of the opportunities that, that many of his peers had um, and didn't have the opportunities that I had. You know, I mean, I kind of came on the scene and, you know, and kind of bursted on the scene and all, all of a sudden had a record contract and was able to lead bands and, you know, make a good living. And we're supposed to want our kids to do that. Yeah. Um, and, and I think he did. I think he was, tr- you know, like I said, I think he was tremendously proud. But um, but but it wasn't fair. I didn't think it was fair, you know. And yeah. so, um, you know, I, th- I, th- I think there, there was a mixture of a lot of emotions uh-huh. um, on, bo- on both of our parts. You went to Harvard College. You, you, you graduated summa cum laude. Um, well, by the way, what subject did you concentrate in? Uh, social studies. Uh-huh. A, a, a highly selective honors uh, major at Harvard. <laughs> yeah. Did you get into Yale Everyone's Law? like, yeah, I did that back in fifth grade. That's like coloring in maps, right? No, no, no. <laughs> it's a big deal. <laughs> and you, you get into Yale Law School, and then your life, at least from the outside, seems to take this this left turn, if not a bigger turn. Was adapting to the sort of life of a jazz player in the milieu a big adjustment for you? 
Not really. Um, I think for the first time in my life, I felt at home. This was the community that I had always been waiting for. I mean, they certainly weren't waiting for me, but I had been waiting to find them. You know, I think I, you know, I, I, I don't want to say I was unhappy growing up, um, uh, but one of the reasons why I was kind of such a serious student um, might have been because I, I felt like I, I had to work hard, um, you know, at something that I was good at, you know. Uh, and when I got to, to to New York and started playing jazz, all of a sudden I, I felt like this is this is my home. These are the people that I that I love, that I feel the most comfortable with. This is what I what I should be doing. It's almost like my entire life up till that point was an adjustment. Uh huh. And and thank goodness you're not a corporate lawyer today. Yeah, yeah. Thank thank goodness for <laughs> for the corporations because I <laughs> they'd have no shot with me defending them. Uh, Josh Redmond, thanks very much for coming in. Hey, thank you. Joshua Redmond's latest album is a collaboration with Brad Meldow called Nearness. He will be on tour this spring with both his Joshua Redmond Quartet and the band Brooklyn Rider. No matter how strong I'm gonna take you down with one little stone. When Rufus Wainwright started making records in the late 90s, he was unlike anyone else out there. His songs were as much turn of the 20th century as they were turn of the 21st, sung in his vibrato-y tenor full of drama and brutally personally honest. Rufus comes from a true folk rock dynasty. His parents, Loudon Wainwright III and Kate McGarrigal, successful musicians, as was his aunt Anna McGarrigal. And his younger sister, Martha Wainwright, has had her own impressive career as a singer-songwriter. And now the Canadian folk lineage continues. In 2011, Leonard Cohen's daughter, Lorca Cohen, a close friend of Wainwright and his husband, served as the surrogate mother for their daughter. I spoke with Rufus in 2014 when he'd released a greatest hits album, Vibrate, the best of Rufus Wainwright. He started off by telling me how his folk singer parents got together. You know, my my parents were very... Well, especially my mother was 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 certainly dynastic uh, when she, when she met my dad. I mean, she really she, thought of it in that. Oh way. yeah, no, she her thing was when she met my dad. She was like, "That's going to be the father of my kids." I mean, she was really drawn. So to it really him was like June Carter a, and Johnny Cash. Visceral, yeah, she saw him on stage, yeah. and then he saw her perform, and it was huh. there was this real uh, mutual fascination with their artistry and their talent, and and then sadly it, that kind of fascination became intense jealousy and it was uh, a, a kind of a fascinating folk breakup but but anyways but so 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 I don't know I was born into that and and along with you know songs written about either their relationship or or myself or my sister I mean it was all it was all uh, laid out, um, and, and, and and then we had other friends who who were similar, um, right. you know, with like Richard and Linda Thompson, and that didn't work out and, either, <laughs> and the Seegers and yeah. stuff. So we, so it's uh, it's not common, but it's also not unusual. Um, may we hear a song? Sure. Going to a town. Okay, here we go. Alrighty. 
That was Rufus Wainwright performing Going to a Town. One of the sources of the power of that song, it seems to me, is instead of being some whiny, scratchy, folk singery sounding person singing such a song, you have this beautiful, classically gorgeous voice singing. The, the, the combination of that with this holy cow kind yeah. of negativism yeah. is, is – it gives it real power. Yeah, well, it's a nice – I mean, it is – that song especially is, is a nice – sort of hybrid of both, you know, the classic protest song and an operatic aria, you know, I try to kind of uh, meld meld them into one. In the past, you've talked about how your parents could both deal with personal issues on stage through their music. Yes. But not so much in real life. Is that something that you share with them, that it's easier for you to sing emotional lyrics in public than, say, privately to a person— this is what I'm feeling about you? There's people in my life with whom that's the case. Not all, but there are. One thing that I will say, though, is, and this is something that, that, I, that occurred to me uh, several years ago during my Saturn return, meaning when I was around 27, um, and, I, and I was a little, you know, foggy and mixed up. And, and druggy. And druggy and weird, is that, you know, I did realize that artistry and, uh, and poetry will not save your life if your life needs to be saved. I mean, I mean, there's a point when you have to kind of get off the trolley ride and, you know, g- go see a therapist and, you know, take care of yourself. And, yeah. and, and, and it has nothing to do with art. And, um, and I think that can actually be a bit of a trap early on for a lot of musicians and, and so forth. Well, uh, and the other part of that, that is can. thinking that your misery in life is nothing but good for your art. Yeah, no, I know. I would say that misery does help <laughs> at time with with songwriting, but but you have to be have the energy to write the songs, you know. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, but as I found out, you know, life was no matter what state you're in or or what's going on, you will always be served your fair share of misery, yes. no matter what. <laughs> and and now that you've been a father for a few years, yeah. has it changed your regard for your father? Yes, it has. I mean, what's interesting is that, you know, my dad, the other day, I went I went for a walk with him around the reservoir up in Central Park, and at the end of the walk, I, um, you know, my, my daughter's three now, and she's at that age where, you know, you're going to get a kiss sometimes, and sometimes you're not going to get a kiss, and you're going to, and but then when she does shine her light on you and says, Daddy, I love you, It's a new, there's a nuclear reaction, you know, that occurs. So, but anyways, I was walking around with my dad, and I, you know, got to the end of the walk, and I hugged him, and I said, Dad, I just want to tell you that I love you, because now I know how great that makes you feel when your kid says that. And so I felt it necessary to kind of impart that to him, because I'm now, you know, begging for it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you, you've said many times, talking about your coming out, which you did yeah. very, very young, realizing yeah. you were gay, that your parents were not so cool with this, yeah. and here, which is so strange to me, these bohemian yeah. countercultural yeah. types, and and it's yeah. the late 80s, yeah, it's called, the 90s. It's, it's called the share. The Cher syndrome. <laughs> uh, speaking of Cher yeah, yeah. and her trans <laughs> yeah, daughter no, son. Yeah, I mean, she was famously somewhat... Yeah, difficult. But you're, uh, but, 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 and one the, would think that Cher would, you know, you would think, know but she's Cher. Your parents are these hippies. <laughs> well, Cher was somewhat hippie-ish. She I was would back say. in the day. Yes, right. Uh, Were you surprised? You know, I, it's so hard for me because there's this this one wild card, which is that all of this took place in 1987, and at that point, you know, AIDS was just 
everywhere, and to be gay was essentially a death sentence. And you, uh, yeah, and so as a parent, and you I think, oh, my, my kid very, is going to... Yeah, and I was very, very young, too. I was 14. So yeah. so I, I don't think it's fair to, to really judge. Um, that being said, for anyone who's out there whose parents are not equipped, let's say, to deal with it, I'm an example of someone who, you know, made it through. And it's not just conventionally stereotypically bigoted people who yeah, can't deal yeah, with it. Yeah, yeah, no, it's I think it's 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 once it's your own kid, it's a whole other story. Can you imagine your own daughter declaring herself X Y or Z something that would freak you out? Uh, probably. <laughs> I don't know. I want to say an attorney. <laughs> uh, but I quite like my attorney, so yeah. so I don't want to be mean. <laughs> um y- your mother raised you. You were extremely close to her. Is there like a a most important lesson about either being an artist or a human being that she taught you? Well, my mother, the thing that was most important that my mother taught me is to always make sure to lay down the arms, you know, whenever you, uh, after a battle. Probably because for her, she wasn't able to, to let go of some anger herself. Huh. She really f- felt it necessary to, to imbue it into her children, that, that quality. And I think that meant a lot to her. And was that not letting go of anger and bitterness professionally as well as personally in her case? Well, yeah, both. I mean, yeah. I mean both. I mean, she was uh very very um kind of haunted almost by her talent and 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 because she didn't make it and because she had to kind of retreat to Canada with her kids. I mean, there was a lot of disappointment there. Yeah. But we've um, all heard of her, so she yeah, didn't not yeah, make no, it. I know. I know, but she wasn't, you know, Barney Raitt or Right, 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 you right. You know, who who she knew and and loved or Carol King or whatever. I mean, there was she wasn't quite or that. Or the Canadians. Yeah, The yeah. fellow Canadians. Oh, yeah, or, or Joni Mitchell, Mitchell for, that, for yeah. that reason. But but in a strange way, I feel that that also gave their music this other quality, which it, there's a certain d- darkness there, a certain depth, a kind of perspective yeah. of the outsider that she put in her in her work, which which makes it so, I don't know, timeless. We all feel basically abandoned. It's great. And and there are a lot of super, <laughs> incredibly successful superstars who then have to force the idea yeah. of soul. I mean, I think the whole thing was, I mean, I, I love Carly Simon, and and we, we knew her quite a bit growing up. We would see her occasionally when we go down to Martha's Vineyard. But there was this thing of like, you know, my mom would be writing about, you know, mashed potatoes and bringing up a teenage daughter and kind of like being alone in, in the dark in her room, turning on and off light switches. And meanwhile, Carly would be like, do I look great in this dress? And I'm making love tonight to some guy on the wharf. You know, and my mom was always like, oh, God. I mean, she was always great. But, it, but there was something... But she wouldn't go – like, she couldn't, like, write this kind of, like, fluffy – which, I mean, I admire about Carly. Here, God, I hope Carly doesn't hear this. But um, but I, she was never able to sort of just play that game of, like, I'm going to write a sexy love song that people are going to want to hear on the radio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's got to be some kind of Bronte <laughs> angle. Yes. Um, before you go, will you play another of your songs? Sure. And this is The Art Teacher? Yes. Great. Shoulder 
That's Rufus Wainwright playing the arts teacher. Lately, Rufus has written an opera based on the life of Hadrian, the Roman emperor, which the Canadian Opera Company will stage later this year. And one last thing for a project we're working on for and about book lovers. What's the most interesting single thing you've ever found tucked into a used book? Like, I don't know, a a love letter or a ticket stuff from a rodeo. Tell us about it in a voice memo or an email and send that to incoming at studio360.org. That's it for today's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our technical director is... Louis Mitchell. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. And I'm Kurt Anderson. He's just this odd combination of goofy and creepy. Thanks very much for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. The women in the Dora Milaje, these soldiers don't need to be scantily clad. The costume designer for the new movie Black Panther didn't want its female warriors to be sex kittens. I want the women to have flat boots, not have on heels like we see a lot of superheroes. Creating a new Afro-futurist look for Black Panther next time on Studio 360.